Mike, thank you very much indeed. Well, do please turn in your Bibles to uh, Exodus chapter 12, to uh, the first of the two readings that Jonathan read for us earlier uh, in the service. Uh, We're looking at this uh, series through Exodus, uh, following the same uh, uh, readings as the uh, boys and girls are are studying uh, over in the church centre right now. That's what we do through the summer. And uh, so uh, mums and dads, particularly, good opportunity for you over lunch to uh, talk about the things you learned. The boys and girls should be learning the same things uh, right now. Exodus chapter 12, page 68 in the Bible. Page 68, Exodus chapter 12. Well, uh, last summer it was the, uh, the, the London bombings of 7-7. This year the British summer has been dominated by the threat of mass murder on transatlantic flights. Uh, the damage, destruction and devastation that could be caused doesn't bear thinking about, does it? Yet there is a much greater threat hanging over Britain and indeed over the whole world. And that is not to undermine the seriousness of the terrorist conflicts being played out all over the world right now. Those are terrible, but as horrific as they are, Christians believe there is still a bigger threat to humanity and it is the coming judgment of Almighty God. Now that is the issue as we come to Exodus chapter 12. As we land here at chapter 12, Egypt was just hours away from from coming under God's judgment. By chapter 12 we know that the nation had repeatedly rebelled against the Lord. They had enslaved and mistreated the Israelites, God's people. They had refused to allow Moses to lead God's people out of Egypt And even when the Lord sent a series of plagues that we heard about last week to sweep through the country, each one reaping havoc on Egypt, still Pharaoh refused to obey the Lord. And so now, as we come to chapter 12, the Lord has one final act of judgment for the land. He announces it at the beginning of chapter 11, verse 1. Chapter 11, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And this plague was going to be so bad. Look, after that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. So Moses announced this plague to Pharaoh. And if you're taking notes, then here's your first point. It's a day of retribution. Retribution through a plague. And it was to come through the most terrifying plague of all of them. Chapter 11, verse 4, this is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who's at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There'll be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. The death of every firstborn male. Can you imagine what that would look like in your family? For me, that it would mean that when I woke up after that morning, I would wake up to discover that my dad was dead, that my brother David was dead, and that my three-year-old son Joshua was dead. Any one of those people dying would crush me. For all three to die on the same day doesn't bear thinking about, does it? Now, with that happening in every household in the land... There would indeed, as it says here in verse 6, be loud wailing throughout Egypt. The devastation that the Lord promised here was unprecedented. A threat greater than anything else we face. 
Egypt's Home Secretary would have put his security staff on red alert. The terror threat would have been upgraded to critical with an attack imminent. Not that any of that would have done any good. No security procedures could thwart this attack. No one was safe. Did you see it there, chapter 11, verse 5? Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl. Now friends, it's a picture of the final judgment where no one will be able to escape the justice of God. And as we look at this plague of the firstborn this morning and we see the misery it causes, it tells us that sin is serious. That judgment is a terrible reality and that there is no escaping it. Everyone will face the judgment of God. And if we only believed that, it would change our priorities in life. When a friend of mine was at university, one of his lecturers said to him, I haven't yet met a Christian who really believes in an eternal punishment for all unbelievers. Because if they did, it would affect everything they did all the time. I've often been challenged by those words. And I was often challenged by a friend who I think may have been one man who really did believe in an eternal punishment for all unbelievers. His name was James Morley. He died eight years ago. James was a fearless evangelist. When we were at theological college together, he he was uh, on one day in a friend's room in tears because he hadn't led anyone to the Lord in the last month. It really bothered him that people were facing the judgment of God. He knew that to face God's judgment was a fate worse than death and it affected the way he lived every day. Do not be mistaken, when God's judgment finally falls upon this world, it will be just as bad as it is reported. See, chapter 11, verses 4 to 6, was not scaremongering, it wasn't exaggeration. Because when this judgment took place, it happened just as the Lord promised. Look at chapter 12 and verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. The morning after the plague of the firstborn, there was not a house without someone dead in it. As he promised, God's judgment affected every household without fail. History tells us that uh, Ramesses II was the pharaoh at the time. He had a long reign in Egypt and when he died, it was his son Merepteh who succeeded him. But Meremptah was not his eldest son. Meremptah's eldest brother died that night as the Lord passed through Egypt. Verse 29, the firstborn of Pharaoh was struck down that night. Wealth and status rescues no one when faced with God's judgment. So at the end of that passing through Egypt of the Lord, in every household someone was dead. And we'll see that that included every Israelite household too, but but not as we might expect. Because while this was a day of retribution through a plague, it was also a day of rescue. Rescue through the Passover. And so important was this day of rescue that it changed the calendar. Did you notice that as we had the reading? Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. A rescue that changed the calendar. It's that significant. And this rescue all revolved around the lamb, verse 3. 
Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. The lamb was to be perfect, verse 5. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. And the chosen lamb was to live among them in the home for four days, verse 6. Take care of them until the fourteenth day of the month. So there had been four days when the lamb would become part of the family. No doubt the children gave the little lamb a name, fed it with milk, played with it in the garden, come to love it. And just as they became attached to it, they were to slaughter it, verse 6. So you take care of them until the fourteenth day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. And then, verse 7, well then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the side and top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. And slaughtering the lamb and putting the blood on the door frames would make all the difference. The blood of the slaughtered lamb would make all the difference in the world. Because on that same night, on the 14th day of the month, the Lord says, verse 12, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, in judgment. God was going to pass through Egypt in judgment. And so the only hope as he passes through is if he'll pass over me. And that's what he promises there in verse 13. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Notice that I will pass over. And that's how this got its name, the Passover. And who would he pass over? Not those who'd been especially religious or particularly sincere or very moral or done anything to help humanitarian aid. Not anything like that. He would pass over every household that had the blood of an innocent lamb painted on its doorpost. Any household who followed the Lord's command, who slaughtered the innocent lamb and painted its blood on their doorpost, anyone who did that would be spared the tragedy of their firstborn son being struck down in judgment. But thousands didn't do that. And so it was a horrific night in Egypt, as we saw in verse 29. Chapter 12, verse 29, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in, in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh sat, sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. There was not a house in Egypt without someone dead. And please note, that was true of the people of Israel too. There was not a house without someone dead, but in every Israelite home there was a dead lamb and not a dead son. The lamb died as a substitute in the place of the firstborn. And thousands of years later, the Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. He writes, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Why don't you turn it up uh, so that we can all see it. Keep your finger in Exodus 12 or keep your service sheet in, in Exodus 12. Come with me to page 1147 so we can all see it and we'll see the link that the New Testament makes with this amazing story in Exodus 12. Page 1147. 
1 Corinthians chapter 5. And you'll see it there at the second half of verse 7. 1147. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. His death was the rescue that would change the calendar. He was the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The lamb who died in our place to take the judgment of God upon himself. The lamb of God who lived among us. The perfect lamb of God who was tempted in every way yet without sin. The lamb whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of sin. See, as I read about the Passover lamb, Jesus, it's meant to take me back to Egypt, back to the morning after that dreadful night before when all, each Israelite family had slaughtered a lamb, eaten the roast meat, smeared its blood on the doorpost and then gone to bed. As I read of Jesus, the Passover lamb, it's meant to take me back to the Israelites waking up on that morning after the Lord had passed through Egypt. That morning when they woke up to the sound of wailing all over Egypt, that morning when they checked the beds of their firstborn, wondering just what they'd find. I remember well when our, when our girls uh, were first born, our twin girls, Susanna and Bethan. I remember the broken nights, mums and dads. Do you remember the broken nights? I remember longing for them to sleep through the night. For that first time when they'd go through the night. You know, people used to say to me, are they sleeping through the night yet? Yeah. Through the night used to mean sort of 12 till 5. That's not through the night. I long for them to sleep through the night. And I remember the first night that they did. Waking up with a start and jumping out of bed, worried that something had happened to them in the night. I remember running into their room and being so relieved to see them still breathing and sleeping peacefully. Long may it continue. <laughs> How many times was that scenario repeated in Israelite homes in Egypt on that day of rescue? What relief they must have felt to see their firstborn son still alive as they leapt out of bed and rushed into the bedroom and saw him peacefully sleeping there. And as they came down for breakfast that morning, they'd see there on the dining room table the carcass of the lamb and they'd know that it was the death of the lamb that had saved their son up in the bedroom. See, death had happened in the household. Sin had been punished. But in their household, it was a lamb that took the hit. The death of the Lamb rescues us from the judgment of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. Let me ask you this morning, are you absolutely sure that you are sheltering under Christ's death? The judgment of God will surely come and it will be a fate worse than death, of greater concern than any terror threat that is hanging over us at the moment. The judgment will come. But God has made provision for us to escape that judgment. But there is only one way to escape it. To go to church? No. To be moral? No. To be a successful member of society? No. To give to charity? No. To do all those things combined? No. There is only one way to escape the judgment of God and that is to shelter under the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Are you sure that his shed blood will mean that on judgment day the Lord will pass over you? Have you trusted Christ? 
Don't put it off another day. If you're not sure, then take this leaflet from me. I'll stand at the door. And as you go, take this leaflet from me at the end of the service and it will tell you more about Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And if you have trusted Christ, as hundreds of us have here, how can you be sure that trusting in Christ will be enough to rescue you from the judgment to come? How can you be sure of that? Here's how you can be sure. Because it happened here in Egypt over 3,000 years ago. And if the death and blood of a little lamb brought salvation from the plague of the firstborn, then you can be absolutely sure that the death and blood of the innocent Lamb of God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, will save you at the judgment. Now look, I would guess that there are some here who will be saying, well look, I have put my trust in Jesus, but my faith isn't very strong and I don't have complete assurance that I'll be rescued on judgment day. Let me take you back to that first Passover again. And let me ask you to imagine two Israelite fathers talking on the evening of the plague of the firstborn. Let's call them Mr. Roberts and Mr. Taylor, two fine Jewish-sounding names. As they prepare to turn in for the night, they, they just happen to meet each other outside their front doors. And Mr. Roberts says to Mr. Taylor, how are you? And Mr. Taylor says, well, look, I don't mind telling you, I'm worried about this coming plague tonight. I love my boy so much, I can't bear the thought of anything happening to him. It would break his mother's heart if he died. And Mr. Roberts replied, well, well, have you put the blood of the lamb on the doorframe as Moses told us to do? Well, yes, I have, says Mr. says Mr. Taylor. Look, here it is. I've done everything just as Moses said. We brought a year-old lamb without defect. We slaughtered it, put its blood on the doorframe. We roasted the lamb over the fire, prepared it just as Moses instructed, and we ate it together tonight. But I've got to say, I can't see what difference that will make. And Mr. Roberts, trying to reassure his neighbour, replied, well, look, Moses said that the blood on the doorpost was a guarantee that the Lord would pass over our house, that the lamb's death and blood would act as a substitute, averting God's anger. I'm confident that my boy is going to be fine, and I love him just as much as you love your son, and I'm going to rest easy tonight in my bed because I'm trusting in the death of the lamb to, to rescue us. And Mr. Taylor replied, well, I wish I had your faith. I'm just not as confident as you. And now let me ask you, the next morning, whose son was rescued, Mr. Roberts or Mr. Taylor's? Answer? Both of them. Both of them. In the morning, both of them were alive because both of them had obeyed the Lord's command. They'd both put their household under the shelter of the blood of the Lamb. Their son's rescue was not dependent on how much they believed it, but that they believed and that they obeyed God's word. The rescue of their son was not dependent on how much faith they had. It was dependent on the death of the lamb. Do you feel as if your faith is not very strong? Not as strong as others here? You see others as spiritual giants, just a spiritual pygmy. Take heart. Your salvation is not dependent on the strength of your faith, but on the fact that you're relying on Jesus' death alone to rescue you. Are you trusting in the death of the Lamb of God to deal with God's judgment? If you are, he will pass over you on judgment day. Even if you feel shaky about it, be assured. Well, a day of retribution through a plague, a day of rescue through a Passover, and thirdly and briefly, a day to remember through a party. Well, that was the only P I could think of. It's not really a party, but a celebration. Now, come back with me to uh, to Exodus chapter 12. 
page 69. You see, so momentous was this rescue that it was to be remembered and was to affect their lives forever. Look at Exodus chapter 12 and verse 14. This is a day for you to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. And then verse 17, celebrate the feast of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. So for all the years that lay ahead, they were to remember this amazing moment, the Exodus, the Passover. Can you imagine how powerful this commemoration would have been for those who first celebrated it? As they sat down every year to eat the Passover meal and to enjoy the Feast of Unleavened Bread, someone would say, do you know, as they sat round the table, do you know, without the Lord's rescue, Grandad would be dead, Uncle David would be dead, and our little Joshua would be dead. How grateful they'd have been. Were it not for the Lord's provision, those they loved and cared for would have suffered death under the judgment of God. They would have been so thankful. And that is exactly how real Christians should feel. We should be so thankful for the death of Jesus rescuing us from the judgment to come that we will celebrate, just as the Lord tells us to celebrate. We will do anything for him out of thankfulness to what he's done for us. For the Israelites, it was to be an annual festival. Every year they were to celebrate with a Passover meal and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Unleavened Bread, bread without yeast as they were to remember that on that first Passover, they could not afford to wait for bread to rise. Look back to verse 11 of chapter 12. This is how you're to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. See, once the Lord had passed through Egypt, they needed to get out of Egypt to escape the world that was enslaving them. Hugh Palmer describes the Passover as a fast food festival. They were to eat and go. Eat and then scarper out of Egypt. Now with that in mind, turn with me one last time to back to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. Last uh, cross-reference and with this we, we close. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Again, page 1147. And we'll see how the New Testament picks up the, um, uh, the festival the Feast of Unleavened Bread, page 1147, 1 Corinthians 5. And let me read from verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know the little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. Christ is our Passover lamb, and as those who trusted in him for our salvation, we should be so grateful for his salvation that we celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, not by sitting down to a meal, but by getting rid here in verses 6 to 8 of everything in our lives that hinders us from fleeing the world and trusting Christ. Here in verse 8, getting rid of malice and wickedness, living lives of sincerity and truth. When I was younger, I remember um, every year my mum doing a sort of spring clean of the house. 
I wonder if my, bro- my brother's here today, I wonder if he remembers it. Um, she would uh, clean it. They'd, they'd, mum and dad would do it both. They, they'd sort of even get out the, um, you know, the linings in the, in the cupboards, clear out all the, uh, all the, all the tins and, and put new linings on the cupboards, cleaning it all out. Go thoroughly through the whole house from top to bottom. Even ask us to clean our bedrooms. I never did it. My brother was much better than me, but I never did it. But we eventually, we'd clean the whole thing. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was something of a, of a spring clean for the Israelites as well, you see. They'd go through the house from top to bottom looking for yeast. Now, we're not to do that, but for us it means checking the cupboards of our lives for anything that hinders us in the Christian life. Anything that w- will stop us from, uh, well, will, will make us stay hanging on to the world. Anything that will be an encumbrance in living for Christ. What the Israelites were to do annually, we should do all the time. But I wonder as we come to the end of the summer holidays and as we head into the beginning of a new academic year, wouldn't it be a good opportunity for us to do something of a spiritual spring clean? To root out of our lives the yeast of ungodliness, as Paul puts it. To rid our lives of anything that stops us fleeing the world and living for Christ. Over the next weeks, as we head towards September, we do well to to look through the different areas of our lives and get rid of the old yeast, as Paul puts it here. To do a spiritual spring clean in the the area of work, at school or college or at the office. And consider where we're being less than sincere and truthful. Where are we not being good good examples at work? And then when we've done that, to look at uh, what we do with our leisure time. What are we reading? What are we watching? How are we spending our money? Does the way we spend our leisure time hinder the Christian life? And then we can look at our family life. Am I honouring my father and mother? Am I loving my husband or my wife? Am I exasperating my children? And we should consider how we live as a church family. Am I doing my part in serving? Am I striving for unity among the brethren? And I need to look at my daily Bible reading and praying and evangelism and well, every area of life. Do a spring clean. That's how we remember with thankfulness our rescue from the coming judgment to come. But as I close, as we look at 1 Corinthians 5, please note this is not primarily a personal response that we should make. But the application here really is of a corporate response. See, Paul wrote these words to the church family. A church family who tolerated gross sexual immorality in the church. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. A man was sleeping with his father's wife. Can you believe it? And they tolerated it. They even boasted in it. Sleeping with his stepmother. Paul said to the church, you should act decisively. Put this man out of the fellowship, verse 5. Get rid of the old yeast, verse 6. For a little yeast works through the whole batch. Friends, out of thankfulness for all that the Lord has done for us in rescuing us from the coming judgment... And to celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we must deal with sinfulness among us. On a wider scale, as we look at the Church of England, this means on this very issue of sexual immorality in the Church, we must fight and speak out against it. It is appalling the things that are happening. And people, just like then, were even boasting in it. We cannot allow it. We must demand that these people are put out of the Church. For for us, there'll be issues for us here that are smouldering beneath the surface. Relationships that are not right, they need to be dealt with. 
out of thankfulness for all that the Lord has done for us. There's gossip that is unhelpful and untrue and I see it and I hear about it, it gets back to me. It needs to be dealt with out of thankfulness for all that the Lord has done for us. There will be sexual behaviour that is not right among us. It needs to be dealt with out of thankfulness for all that the Lord has done for us because a little yeast will work through the whole batch. There are people pushing their own agenda, pushing themselves forward. It needs to be dealt with out of thankfulness for all that the Lord has done for us. There's malice among us. It needs to be replaced with sincerity and truth out of thankfulness for all that the Lord has done for us. And we must get rid of any of this yeast that makes us like the world because this yeast will work through the whole batch. That's how we celebrate the Passover. That's how we live out the feast of unleavened bread. And that is what gives glory to the Lord who gave his life for us. So let's flee the world, live for him, and do it in remembrance that we've been rescued from the day of retribution. Let's pray together.